Welcome to Kingdom.Think. Well, I hope you're enjoying this process because we are going through the Bible one day at a time. And um, we're in Exodus. This is a very, very important book in the Bible because remember the Israelites were in, in captivity so for 430 years. So they have learned a new culture. Generations have passed and they only know how to be slaves of the Egyptians. That's like part of who they are now because it's become their culture. It's become their identity. So here God's taken them out of captivity, but he's got to reteach them, recondition, uh, re-change their identity. And that's the whole thing with reading this Bible. It's not just the, the Israelites that need an identity change. We need an identity change. So as we see them go through their identity change and transformation throughout the entire Bible, throughout history, we need to remember that we also need an identity change because we've been conditioned by our culture as well. So <clears throat> depending on where you are in your your maturity, in your walk, in your understanding, in your upbringing, all those factors matter. But ultimately, we can all get something from how God was transforming the Israelites during this process. So he already gave us the Ten Commandments. That's key. He gave us the Ten Commandments. There was, it was so clear, so simple. But now he's going to start to get even a little bit more detailed about how to live on a day-to-day -day basis, how to have justice, how to be fair. He's literally creating the legal system that really we follow to this day. Our country, the United States, developed on godly principles. And so they've taken a lot of these principles that God laid down right here in chapter 21 and chapter 22 into our legal system today. So you're going to have to read this because there's a lot of details and some of them won't make sense because you'll be like, well, well wait a second, time out. Why does it have to be slaves? Or why does it have to be sacrifices? And these were questions that I always wondered, even like Jesus dying on the cross. Why does there have to, why does that have to happen? Why does there have to be a death in a, to, remember, we're talking about the invisible spiritual realm that we don't understand. So we have to grasp that concept that we're here in this reality we don't fully understand the spiritual realm, but it's a very real reality is the, um, the spiritual reality, the spiritual realm. And so sacrifices, for example, I was doing a lot of digging on that one. And I found this one key piece where it was talking about um, the key is that God's holiness requires that sin not be ignored because God is perfect and holy and sinless. So like he can't be around sin, like that can't be in his space. Someone must pay the price to remove the offense. Remember when God said, don't come near the mountain of Mount Sinai because they weren't, and then they had to consecrate themselves. They had to wash all their clothes and just really prepare. You have to, because God's of holiness, um, you have to be prepared. Okay, so, so then we go on. It says, once the price is paid, the sin can be forgiven. Sacrifices were God's way of teaching the spiritual truth to his people. So a sacrifice is almost a symbolic truth to what's happening in the spiritual realm. Another important concept is that the innocent can substitute for the guilty. God allowed a sin payment to be made on behalf of someone else. In the Old Testament, these payments were animal or food sacrifices um, when, when offered in faith. These pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, Christ's death, the sins of the world. 
Sacrifices also involved offering something valuable as a token of gratitude to God. So in the Old Testament, all these sacrifices of animal or food or those kind of things were symbolic and just, it just led up to Jesus dying on the cross and being the ultimate sacrifice. That's why we're often referring to him as the lamb um, because it's symbolic for that sacrifice. He was the ultimate sacrifice for all of mankind. So we go into detail and... in chapter 21 and 22. But you're going to wonder, wait, wait, time out. Why does there have to be slaves in the first place? Because there's a lot of stipulations about how to handle slaves. Now, a lot of these slaves went in voluntarily and a lot of like fathers sold their daughters to slaves, but there's stipulations that if he treats her poorly, then there's consequences. If he lot of different stipulations. So if you continue to read, don't just read one scripture, read the whole thing because you'll see, no, God was protecting those called slaves. Uh, They were to work for six years and then given freedom on the seventh year. It's not necessarily complete slavery. So there's a lot of weird things that you may not understand, but just understand that there was culture back then for slavery. They understood slavery but God put stipulations so people were treated fairly, respectfully. He even deals with things about neighbors uh, stealing. He deals with stealing and how to deal with those issues. So it's tremendous, the detail that's in chapter 21 and 22. So you're going to have to read that. And it's very interesting. And when you read it, don't read it so much with judgment of, well, I don't think that's right. Or I don't just understand it had its correct principle and trust. You just have to trust the fact that it was laid out correctly. Then we're moving on to Psalms 36. Now, Psalms 36 is pretty short, so I will actually just go ahead and read that. I have a message from God in my heart. Sounds like a journal writing or a prophetic word. I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Isn't that the truth? In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect or hate their sin. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful. They fail to act wisely or do good. Even on their beds, they plot evil. They commit themselves to a sinful course and do not reject that what is wrong. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. Your, you, Lord, preserve both people and animals. (laughs) That's why I do think that animals do go to heaven because it says right here, he preserves people and animals. FYI, that's what I think. Okay, how priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights, for with you is the fountain of life. Ooh, in your light, we see light. Continue your love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. See how the evildoers lie fallen, thrown down, and not able to rise. So that was Psalms 36. So we're going to move on to Mark 8. Don't you love it how we go a little old, one Psalms and one New Testament? This is the way to get through the Bible by the end of the year. 
we're going to finish the New Testament much sooner, but um, this is the way to get through the Bible in one year. And it's powerful because you're getting, it's like you're getting fed. You're literally getting fed every single day. <clears throat> okay, so here we are. Chapter 8 of Mark. Jesus feeds 4,000. Remember he fed, remember the, the five loaves of bread and he fed the 5,000? Well, it's going to happen again. Jesus feeds the 4,000. We talked about this in the book of Matthew. We're talking about it again. And Mark must have been a very memorable moment that they both repeated it. <clears throat> so they were out preaching again. The people were very famished. God said, or Jesus said, what do we have? They said, seven loaves of bread. Boom, let's do it. Let's feed them. Sure enough, that's what they did. And at the very end, they forgot to save some bread. And they were so worried. They're like, oh my goodness, we forgot. And they heard Jesus say something. And I bet you walking with Jesus was just, he must have just quoted wisdom all day long. And that's what he did. So they're probably walking along and he says, be careful. Watch out for the yeasts of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Well, the disciples looked at each other. Oh my gosh, I think he's talking about the bread that we forgot. Jesus was, he heard their heart, right? And he goes, ay, 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 what are you guys talking about? You silly boys. Didn't I, okay, why, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 and the basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Oh, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve. And when I broke the seven loaves of four, to feed the 4,000, how many baskets did you pick up? Seven. Do you still not understand? <laughs> Aw, poor disciples. They were just trying to figure things out. Um, then moving on on chapter 8, Jesus heals a blind man. He spits. I don't know where he spits. Does he spit on his hand and then put his hand on the, the blind man? Does he spit on the ground and then he put... I don't know. He didn't really need to spit because this is Jesus. He could have just poof. But symbolically, he put his hand on the man's eyes. Well, remember, he's teaching the disciples for that in the future, you're going to be able to do these things, but greater. So maybe he needed to show them symbolically that you lay your hands on the man's eyes. And that's what Jesus did. So the next middle portion of chapter eight, Jesus asks, who do you think I am? Peter answers, you are the Messiah. Very cool. Oh, ooh, moving down chapter eight, Jesus talks about his death. He's sitting with the disciples and he said, you know, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that, oh, that he must be killed and three days he will rise again is what he told him. Yikes. That he will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers and that he will be killed and three days raised, rose again. Well, Peter didn't like that. Peter was saying, no, Jesus, that's not going to happen. Jesus says, you don't get it, do you? You're not seeing from God's eyes. And then, of course, the famous line, get behind me, Satan, <laughs> which is kind of harsh because like Peter was probably like, yo, I'm not Satan. But that's what he said. Get behind me, Satan. You do not understand the concerns of God. You are merely thinking from your human perspective. Okay. When he called the crowd to him along with the disciples, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. That's always such a brain twister, right? What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet, for, 
forfeit their soul? Or what can anybody, anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me, here's a key point. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Dang. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that kingdom of God has come with power. Okay, that's cool and very important to remember. Verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generations, I don't know. Do you know any people who are ashamed to declare that they're Christians or that they love Jesus or they believe in Jesus or that they've given their life to Jesus or that the gospel, that the Bible is real and true and awesome? Do you know anyone who's ashamed to talk about it? How interesting, how interesting that Satan knew this scripture right here and he has created a culture that is a shame to declare the name of Jesus. They made it like uncool to talk about Jesus. Well, that I believe is turning around. I know it's turning around because that's why I like to go to churches that, that I like to go to all churches to be, believe it or not, but I like churches that are cool, cool music, cool people. Why? Because we have to appeal to um, anyone. If someone likes music, well, then they're going to like some cool music. If someone likes just the teaching and the learning, well, then someone's going to go to a church that is just teaching and learning. But the gospel has to appeal to everybody. And we have to be proud and um, proud that we are uh, Jesus followers and that we're Christians because of this verse right here. And Satan has made it that our culture doesn't think it's cool. But again, that's shifting. So there you go. Mark 8. I kind of went on a rant about that one scripture because that's so key. It straight up says, if you're ashamed to declare the name of Jesus, he will be ashamed to mention your name um, when he's standing in front of God. Oh, snap. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled about by this silly culture that it's not cool to be a Jesus follower. If you don't think it's cool to be a Jesus follower, go find a cool church. Go listen to some cool music. Uh, go, go to a Christian concert. They're way more fun than a, than a secular concert. The greatest concert I ever went to, Christian concerts by far. And you want deep lyrics? Listen to some Christian music. That'll pierce your soul. So yes, being a Jesus follower is very cool. We've got to make it such that other people see it cool too and they want to be, uh, they're attracted to the gospel, attracted to Jesus. So that's my take on that. Hope you enjoyed that.